Our scripture today is John 12, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Mary served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one disciple, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. You were asking me why I was saving the perfume. (laughs) I don't know why I was saving it. I just knew it was special. It was really expensive perfume. And it was supposed to be for my mother's body at her burial. But then we couldn't use it. So I saved it. It was beautiful. And it reminded me of her. Sometimes I would just sit with the jar and enjoy its beauty and memories. When I first heard about the rabbi, I was curious, but I didn't join the crowds. I mean, I thought, who has the time? My sister and I were pretty busy helping my brother keep his household running. The stories about Jesus kept growing. Then my brother invited him to come to our house. And he came. We were amazed at his teaching. His kindness. His ability to really see people. To see me. And he performed miracles. Really, miracles. And he raised. He healed people. He became really good friends with our family. Me, my sister, my brother. And he became Rabboni. Our teacher. And we began to see that he was even more than what we knew before. Then, my brother got really sick. Really sick. 
It was awful. I was so scared. All I could think about was how quickly our mother went from sick to dead. We didn't know what to do, so we sent for the rabbi. We heard he was not far away, but he didn't come. At least not till it was too late, until after my brother had died. I should have used the perfume on my brother's body, but I was so angry. I knew it was wrong, but I hid the perfume and pretended I didn't know where it was. I was angry that my brother was dead. When Jesus arrived, my brother had been dead for four days and in the tomb. Jesus asked to be taken to the grave, asked for the stone to be rolled away, and called out to my brother, Lazarus, come out. And he came. He he came out. He was alive. It was the most mind-blowing experience of my life. I will never fully understand And I will never be the same. But do you know that as amazing as that miracle was, that was not when I first realized that he was the Messiah. It was a little before that. When the Lord came and saw me crying and wept with me. And I knew he loved me. He saw the depths of my anguish and loved me. So a few weeks later, when Jesus was again dining in our village, I knew that I wanted what I wanted to do finally with that perfume. I understood why I had been saving it. My heart was convicted to find some way to show him my love. To tell him how much he meant to me and how much he had changed my life. So, I poured it all out on him. Every last precious drop because I knew that he was pouring himself out for me I know lots of people think I was a fool that perfume it could have been sold it was worth a year's wages it could have fed the poor but I had never felt so strongly, so convinced that I needed to tell Jesus and really tell the whole world that he 
was everything. Everything. Will you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, as we come to sit at your feet and at your table to know more about you, we ask that you would spread the fragrance of your beauty, the sweetness of your presence. Where we are marked by death, where pain lingers, where we do not have words, for all that we hold and all that has transpired. We pray that today you would meet us in our stories, evoking in us a longing for more fullness in our devotion to you. Open in us a thousand pathways into story. In your name we pray. Amen. The story rarely begins where we think it does. Were I to tell you of that day in 2018, where my 16-year-old and I drove the stretch of the Highway 1 down in California between Malibu and Santa Monica, with the windows down and this child singing, you would not understand the story of it, the pain of it, the beauty of it, the absolute tenderness and poignancy and fragility and beauty of those particular moments. You could pick a random story from your life and tell it to me now. And unless I knew more of you, more of where you had been, what you had come through, what you had journeyed in your life, I would not be able to understand all that story meant to you and why you chose to tell it to me in the way that you did. We must always hold this, the complexity of the story, and that there is always more to the story than the portion that we hear. It may seem like its own complete story, but it always is a story in context. We've gotten really good at reducing stories down, at forgetting that there is always more to it. As the father of linguistics, Norm Chomsky, says of language, there is a surface structure and a deep structure. This is true of stories, and true of our gospel story today as well. The story, as we just heard, does not begin at this meal taking place six days before the Passover in the little community of Bethany, where we are told that Jesus and Lazarus are reclined at the table. This story does not begin when Martha serves the first dish, or when Judas speaks and Jesus responds. 
This story does not begin or end in this version of the perfume story as told in the Gospel of John where Lazarus' sister Mary is the one to pour this whole bottle of nard worth a year's wages for a fully employed male on Jesus' feet and then shockingly unbinds her hair and uses it to wipe it off his feet. No, the story does not begin here nor does it end here. It doesn't even begin in the story before that is referenced with what we just heard. But that is where we are going to pick up and and begin the story so that we can better understand what we have going on in this little bit today. In the story of the one before, you will notice we were also in Bethany. We learn that a certain man, a friend of Jesus's named Lazarus, has died. Jesus knew he was ill, but didn't go to him in time to heal him. In fact, we are told in the narrative that Jesus delayed. And so by the time that Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus has died. Let us pause here. We need to not skip over death. This death, all death, has impact. And we are surrounded by it right now. With Ukraine, what is happening there, with what has transpired through the pandemic over these last years, both here in our country and throughout the world. Death marks us. It marks our lives. It marks the lives near to those who died and those even sometimes farther away. Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters, are deeply marked when Lazarus dies. They lived with him, which means that they were likely unmarried. Lazarus was their protector, their provider, their safety net. And they loved him. Their lives were forever altered when he died. After death, after suffering, after deep pain, life doesn't just go back to the way it was before how could it we need to feel some of this place be this place that is marked by death this obliterated place we must understand this place on some level to understand what comes next i would like to share a portion of a letter of a man deeply impacted by death. Cheryl Strayed wrote a book called Tiny Beautiful Things, and she had written a column for years where people would write in, um, kind of like a Dear Abby, so she was sugar, so they would write in to Dear Sugar asking for advice. This is a collection of some of those letters and her response. And in our society, as we have seen, we rush over death, death, 
And I'm of the opinion that this is not healthy or sustainable. So we're going to pause in these moments and acknowledge death, its impact. This letter speaks of the death of a child. Now, there are those of you in here who have been impacted by that. You have lost a child or someone else near to you. And if you think you can't sit through this, this is okay. We need to normalize that we can't sit through everything. We can't hear everything. You're free to get up and walk around for the next two minutes. This man speaks of how complicated death and grief are. And sometimes, though, it is a relief to hear someone who acknowledges how crazy grief can make us feel. If you've lost someone, I'm sorry for your loss. I hope you will not feel so alone. Dear Sugar, Number one, it's taken me many weeks to compose this letter, and even still, I can't do it right. The only way I can get it out is to make a list instead of write a letter. This is a hard subject, and a list helps me contain it. You may change it to a regular letter if you wish to, or should you choose to publish it. Number two, I don't have a definite question for you. I'm a sad, angry man whose son died. I want him back. That's all I ask for, and it's not a question. Number three, I will start over from the beginning. I'm a 58-year-old man. Nearly four years ago, a drunk driver killed my son. The man was so inebriated, he drove through a red light and hit my son at full speed. The dear boy I loved more than life itself was dead before the paramedics even got to him. He was 22, my only child. Number four, I'm a father while not being a father. Most days it feels like my grief is going to kill me, or maybe it already has. I'm a living, dead dad. Number five, your column has helped me go on. I have faith in my version of God, and I pray every day, and the way I feel when I'm in my deepest prayer is the way I feel when I read your words, which feel sacred to me. Number six, I see a psychologist regularly, and I'm not clinically depressed or on medication. Number seven, suicide has occurred to me. Given the circumstance, ending my life is a reasonable thought, but I can't do it because it would be a betrayal of my values and also of the values I instilled in my son. Number eight, I have good friends who are supportive of me, my brother and sister-in-law and two nieces, and my ex-wife and I have become close friends since our son's death. Number nine, in addition, I have a rewarding job, good health, and a girlfriend whom I love and respect. Ten, in short, I'm, not, I'm going on with things in a way that makes it appear like I'm adjusting to life without my son. But the fact is, I'm living in a private hell. Sometimes the pain is so great, I simply lie in bed and wail. Eleven, 
I can't stop thinking about my son, about the things he would be doing now if he were alive, and also the things I did with him when he was young, my good memories of him, my wish to go back in time and either relive happy memories or alter those that are less than happy. 13. I hate the man who killed my son. For his crime, he was incarcerated 18 months, then released. He wrote me a letter of apology, but I ripped it into pieces and threw it in the garbage after barely scanning it. 15. I fear you will choose not to answer my letter because you haven't lost a child. 16. I fear if you choose to answer my letter, people will make critical comments about you, saying you don't have the right to speak to this matter because you haven't lost a child. 17. I pray you will never lose a child. 18. I understand if you choose not to answer my letter, most people, kind as they are, don't know what to say to me, so why should you? I certainly didn't know what to say to people such as me before my son died. So I don't blame others for their discomfort. 20. What can you say to me? 21. How do I go on? 22. How do I become human again? Signed, living, dead, dad. The complexity of making one's way in the world as we carry deep pain and grief is shown in this letter. But unfortunately, suffering and pain, loss and grief, experiences of death are ones that feel like death, are part of our human portfolio. Into Mary and Martha's grief, Jesus steps You can hear, can you not, both Mary and Martha say with agony, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus joins in their weeping. We are told he is greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He makes his way to the tomb where he tells those with him to take away the stone. And then we have an important sensory detail. Martha, our practical Martha, says, um, wait, he's been dead four days. He's going to stink. Death stinks. It smells bad. So let's fast forward to our scene. We were at a meal, and it said in the Virgin read that it was, a, it was a meal to celebrate Jesus, but it was likely a celebratory meal to celebrate Lazarus as well. The one who is dead 
is alive. Just a few days before, he was laying out in a tomb on a cold slab wrapped in grave clothes. He was anointed for death from head to toe. Now here he is today reclining at a table with his family and friends. He is eating. He is drinking. He is alive. He's here. How do you capture this? I don't think you can with words. There are no words for this kind of moment. And into this scene comes Mary, the one who has shown her devotion to Jesus, sitting at his feet, soaking up his words, his teachings, his presence. She has no words for this moment, for the immensity of what she is feeling. What is she feeling? I make up its immense gratitude, its immense love. She probably doesn't even know all that she is feeling, but it's a lot. And she must do something with all that she feels. She has no words, so she embodies her devotion, her love, her gratitude. She uncorks a precious bottle of nard, pouring it at his feet and on his feet. It is extravagant. It is a lot. It is not enough. She pours it all out, every last bit of it. Then she unbinds her hair and wipes his feet with her hair. It is an intimate act, this that she does. It would be considered unacceptable, shameful in this honor and shame-based culture. For a woman could only unbind her hair in the presence of other women or in front of her husband. The house is filled with the fragrance of perfume. The air is filled with beauty, and then into this space, Judas enters with his words of judgment, his words of shame, his words of condemnation, his words that show that he does not understand the deep structure of the story that is unfolding. Why was this perfume not sold and the money given to the poor? Jesus' response to Judas is brilliant, beautiful, profound. Leave her alone, he says. Do you not know what this story is? She was obliterated by the loss of her brother. Gutted by it. When he died, it was dark and terrifying. Her grief was immense. Leave her alone. Do you not see this is her immense love for Lazarus and for me being poured out? 
Do you not see her gratitude that knows no bounds? The one she loved was dead. He is alive now. He is here. Do you see him at the table? He is eating supper with us a few days ago. He was dead and he stunk. Smell the air now, Judas. What do you smell? I smell perfume. I smell beauty. I smell love. You don't grasp all that is going on here. There is so much going on. She anointed my feet. Do you know what that means? Think on it. When do people get their feet anointed, Judas? In death. It's a ritual marking death. The poor? You want to talk about the poor? They will always be with you. In fact, when you leave here, they will be there, and you can do something about it then. But right now, I am here. I am right in front of you. I will not always be here in a little while. What Mary has been done, what Mary has done for me here to honor me will be what lingers, what remains. In a little while, you will all understand what has been done here. In this moment, Mary's grief carved out a canyon in her, and now her joy is filling that space. She's done a really beautiful thing here. Leave her alone. Teresa Pascal, in her book, Sacred Wounds, says that there is access to beauty that is only available to those of us who have lived through pain and know what it is to be deprived of light, life, and grace for far too long. We stretch toward the sun with an earnestness that comes from knowing how dark the darkness is. We lean into joy with more urgency because we know the density of a guttural and deep lament. Those of us who have been obliterated, gutted, have suffered deeply, do not take the beauty of moments where we can empty a bottle of perfume on one we love for granted. We pour it all out. Every last bit of it. There's a wonderful little garden book, The Marvel Hours, where the author tells the story of old Tom the shepherd who lived in the countryside of England in a little cottage. And near the cottage, there was a brook. And along the brook at this time of year, the banks were covered with snowdrops. And Tom, every year, would go out and dig up 
some of those clumps of snowdrops and transplant them along the lanes near his cottage. Every year, extending that little bit of beauty, that little swath of white, a little further out. At the time of the writing, old Tom was no longer able to do that anymore, but people around had seen what Tom did, and they had taken up the mantle. So they would come and dig up some of the clumps of snowdrops by the brook and extend that beautiful path of white year by year. Beauty, extravagance, spreads. It is invitational. It has a lingering long-term impact. Just this week, in this snowdrop season here in Washington, where those snowdrops are a welcome sign that spring is on its way, I was given three clumps of snowdrops from my best friend's garden. She is moving out of state. She has been my near neighbor since 2005 and my friend for longer. We've swum in the Nile River together, eaten goat roasted over an open fire in Uganda, jumped out of airplanes in San Diego, walked all over Edmonds with her bulldog stew in the wagon behind her. I'm filled with grief and loss over this change. She helped keep my son alive. She's poured so much beauty and love into my life. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take that, those little clumps of snowdrops. And every year, I'm going to divide them. And I'm going to continue to spread them all over my property. And when that's full, I'm going to take them elsewhere. Keep spreading that life and that beauty. I do not have a tidy way to wrap up this sermon, and I, in fact, I resist that. The deep narratives of Scripture, the deep narratives of our own life, they don't have a tidy, easy ending because they're not over. But I do pray and hope for you that out of your sorrows, out of your losses, out of your pain and your suffering, out of the place where death remains and lingers, those places where you have been gutted and hollowed out, new space will open up. A space that allows you to show up differently in the places that you end up, seeing who and what is in front of you, knowing and sensing and smelling the beauty and pouring it out, pouring out your love, honoring what is with you, before you, in you, both the wounds, the scars, and the resurrections, the hints of death, and the expressions of life.
This Lent, may we enter into all of it, inhabiting and embodying our grief and our love. We don't always have words. In fact, we won't always have words. Some things are just too deep for them. And as we come to the Lord's table, today I want us to focus on the sensory experience of this table. To help ground us in that, I'd like you to take a moment and try to notice five things that you see. What do you see? Bread. It's a lovely loaf of bread. Pitcher. The people around you. Appreciate that. The beauty of that. What are four things you can touch? I want you to touch someone's hand next to you, the pew. Feel the texture. Now think of three things that you smelled recently. Yesterday was the green grass my neighbor was cutting. Spring is on its way, along with the sneezes that come with it. Cup of coffee this morning. The baby's head that you got to kiss. What are things that you've smelled recently? In a moment, we're going to taste two things, the bread and the wine. We'll do that in a moment. This is a table that our Lord set for us. Jesus is the host. We are invited to it. We don't have to have a lot of words. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we come to this, your table, we ask that you would just help us to be present here. We thank you for the deep structure of this table, the deep structure of the healing and the redemption and the hope that you offer and bring. But we are also grateful for the way that this story meets us in all of our places. This is not a pretty story. There's a lot of darkness in this story. And we recognize that. Lord, meet us here, feed us here, for we do need to be fed. We do need new life. In your name we pray. Amen.